0: The rest of you can turn in, Matthew, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a uh, kind of a, an autobiography of his, you know, the first half of his life, so to speak, called Surprised by Joy. C.S. Lewis was uh, uh, born in England. He uh, his mother died at a fairly young age, and so he lost uh, a lot of joy, a lot of security in his life when that happened. And uh, it moved him toward basically atheism the idea that, if you know, how could God do something like this? And, and it, he was really didn't believe in God and tried to live that way. But he, um, the, the more the books that he read and, and the, the, the thoughts that he pondered, the realize, he realized that his philosophical bent toward atheism and the way he actually experienced life did not match up. And, and so he titled the book in, in, in his process through into actually coming to a belief in God and then coming to a belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Savior from sin and death. He, called, he titled that book Surprised by Joy because he realized that, uh, that joy is a serious thing. And his young life, having lost it, and then to, in a sense, regain it, in a sense, in a surprising way, was for him an amazing thing. He he made a couple of quotes here from his book. He says, All joy reminds, it is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. There's always something more to it, is what he's saying. Students would like this quote. He says, "The greatest service we can do to education today is to teach fewer subjects. No one has time to do more than a few things very well before he is twenty. And when we force a boy to be a, a mediocrity in a dozen subjects, we destroy his standards, perhaps for life." It's kind of an interesting idea, but, it, but again, he's being serious about joy. He goes on to say in the book, he says, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could if he chose just hand out to anyone. Why? Because they are in himself. Joy, eternal life, power, peace, they're in himself. He cannot give you those without giving you himself. And for you to receive them, you must come into himself. He makes this comment about the the way our culture has moved toward uh, just having fun. In a sense, he says, Dance and game are frivolous, frivolous, unimportant down here, for down here is not their natural place. He's saying there's a place for fun and joy, ultimately. But he says, Here they are, a moment's rest from the life we were placed here to live. But in this world, everything is upside down. That which, if it could be prolonged here, would be a truancy, is like as that which in a better country is the end of ends. Joy is the serious business of heaven. In opposition to that, he says, the demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that is, that, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy that there should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. He was serious about joy. And when we get into the story in Matthew 2 of wise men coming, they're serious about joy as well. Magi were... Uh, exile they, they were probably somewhat a re- reference to th- what continued after Daniel right? These men who were trained in the Babylonian arts of wisdom and knowledge they studied prophecy and seasons and times probably a lot of them were Jewish, not all of them for sure but they, they were impacted by Daniel, they were looking for the promised Messiah and they were exiles in a sense in their own land, and they saw a star that signified something important in their worldview and their cosmos. And they decided to go to Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews. It's ironic in this story that in Matthew chapter 1, we talk about God being with us. And then in Matthew chapter 2, you see exiles coming. You know, almost rejoining, coming back to the land, so to speak, to to see the king of kings, to to find this Messiah, and then for the Messiah, in turn, to be exiled away to Egypt. There's there's a pattern here to the story of the fact that as we seek for joy, we have to realize that in some ways, it means that we're not like everybody else. That there's a seriousness to the pursuit of joy that means that not... Not everybody's going to take that serious pursuit on. And yet, at the same time, we have to understand that we become what we celebrate. We become what we celebrate. That that the things that we celebrate actually influence and form us and shape us. Think about the the 4th of July as a holiday, right? We, We celebrate it every year as... For, for Americans as a part of being uh, citizens of the United States of America. And it's part of, in a sense, our national heritage. It's a, a, it goes back to that, that Declaration of Independence that was signed. And and you can celebrate it a couple of different ways, right? You can celebrate, you know, in a sense, the birth of our country. But you can celebrate it like, okay, well, man, the government stinks and... and uh, uh and uh, why can't we just do, do better as a country? But at least we get fireworks. <laughs> hey, the United States is all about having fun, in a sense. Or you can celebrate, reminding yourself of how did we get here? We got here as we declared, uh, you know, no representation without, you know, no taxation without representation. The fact that we wanted to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. That we we wanted to be a country that would that. Per, per, Pursued liberty and encourage liberty for all right and it can if you celebrate it in that way it can reaffirm your commitment to the pursuit of freedom when we come to christmas we know that we can celebrate it a couple of different ways as well right We can celebrate it and remind ourselves of all the presents we're going to get and the the family that we're going to have together and the fun that we're going to have and and it's all about how much fun we're going to have and if we don't have the fun that we anticipate having at Christmas, then uh, Christmas isn't what we hoped it would be, right? Or we can celebrate reminding ourselves of the birth of the king, God coming in the flesh to be amongst us, to be with us. We who are exiled from him, cast out, facing death because of sin, now we're welcomed back into the family. We're brought in and brought near by God's grace in Jesus Christ. And and how we celebrate it is important because we have to, in a sense, we want to be serious about joy. Where does joy come from? How do we receive it? And what can we have as a result? And I want to see, as we look at Matthew chapter 2, that as we see these wise men who are serious about joy, that there are three, in a sense, ways, we'll probably only get to two of them today because of time, but ways that we can search for joy. First of all, we can search for joy by seeking true worship, by seeking true worship. Just follow along as in Matthew chapter 2 as I read, and, and just to remind ourselves of the story, Here it's a familiar story, but it's such a great story as well. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained for them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, and bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Okay. In a sense, these wise men coming, we don't know how, we traditionally say there's three because of the three gifts. And, and we have Herod the king, this, this again, history tells us that, that Herod was a, a, very, a wicked king who was maybe certifiably insane in a sense, he was afraid of, of losing his power and he had killed off family members who he thought were plotting to get rid of him. He was, in a sense, perennially worried about losing his power. He was also uh, uh, an Edomite. That is, he, he hailed from the line, not of Jacob, but of Esau. And there's always this tension all the way from Genesis onward between Jacob and Esau's descendants. And there's this hatred that's there. You can see even Obadiah the prophet talks about it. And here again, this echo of this hatred is here as Herod as, in a sense, the false king who's obtained power in Jerusalem through Rome wants to maintain that power and is uh, then troubled, right, when the wise men come saying, where's the king you know, who was born? And it's like, okay, there's a new threat to my power, right? And they inquire, they find from the prophet Micah that, that the, the Messiah is going to be born in, in Bethlehem and the wise men get there and offer the gifts. And what we see here, you know, you think about it, they, they went through a lot to pursue this joy, Right? It started off by probably for years paying attention to the stars, which most of us don't even go and look at on a regular basis anymore, right? And then they, uh, when they noticed a particular star, they decided, hey, we're not going to just be like, oh, I wonder what, what, wonder what that sign actually means. Oh, maybe I'll find out one day, you know, maybe Jerusalem News will tell me <laughs> at some point and I'll, uh, I should subscribe to Jerusalem News so I can figure out what happened back then, you know what I mean? No. They they decided to pack up and travel probably for weeks through potentially dangerous territory to arrive in Jerusalem and then kind of just search. I mean, they literally had no idea, right? Like, they're just like, we, we have no clue. We just believe that a king has been born based on a star and we're trying to figure out if that's actually true or not. Can you, can you imagine, in a sense, the humility and the, the awkwardness, right? It'd be, in a sense, like going to New York City and being like, hey, I heard someone was born who's really important. And everybody's like uh yeah so what right but they did it they pursued it they searched and of course Herod unwittingly provides the key right Bethlehem and as they go to Bethlehem they again see this star probably not a physical star this time but a but a star a light from the glory of God leading them again just like in the wilderness to the right place. And they find Mary and the baby not in the manger anymore. This is probably months after he was born. And they worship him. A lot of times we think of worship as coming to church, right? Worship even as singing, right? Having beautiful music and and singing together. But worship, that might be the culmination of worship, but that is not worship, really. Worship is about ascribing worth. It's about ascribing value to something. Worship culminated in joy, but it started with the packing and the traveling and the questioning and the searching. It ended out in giving gifts of value. Worship is about ascribing worth to something. It's about saying this is what's truly valuable. And yes, we... We look for signs about how things should go in life, and but most of the time, I think in our, especially in our busy world that we live, what's truly valuable for us is a lack of stress, right? It's the, it's getting rid of stress, or maybe it's a, uh, making sure I get all my accom- my responsibilities accomplished. Like that, I'm that what's valuable to me if I can check off my checklist. Or what's, what's valuable to me is, is, is protecting my family or enjoying my family. And all of those are valuable. They are. So Sometimes we forget that when we think of worship, we, again, we just think of just coming together and singing. And There's our worship. No, again, the singing really is the culmination of all the other value decisions, the value judgments you make along the way. What's truly valuable to you? Here, these men demonstrate that they value not just kind of knowing their own information, affirming their own worldview. They value seeing the king, ascribing value and worth to the king. These gifts that they bring, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, obviously, is valuable. Frankincense and myrrh were valuable perfumes, essences, if you will. And, and and we have to think sometimes outside of ourselves. And in Surprise by Joy, C.S. Lewis made this quote. He says, I, am, I imagined life without narcissism. That is, like, life without being so, so focused on oneself. I wondered how beautiful it might be to think of others as more important than myself. I wondered how, how peaceful it might be not to be pestered by that childish voice that wants for pleasure and attention... I wondered what it would be like to live in a house of mirrors everywhere I go being reminded of myself. I think it's actually the quote There's. I wondered what it would be not to be, live in a, in a house of mirrors everywhere I go being reminded of myself. Like he's saying, look, we get so focused on ourselves. Why? Because a lot of times what's truly valuable is not God and what he's doing in the world and how we can see it in action what's valuable is ourselves it's what we want for ourselves what we desire for ourselves that child that like he says seeks for pleasure and attention and and you can under, you can understand this is not him just getting angry with himself about that this is him just acknowledging the fact that he lost his mother and he wanted to hear that voice of security and love tell him i love you my son right and he's saying i wish i could at least get get beyond that in a sense And what these wise men teach us by example is all our joy must terminate in God. Our thoughts of God must be delightful thoughts. It is our duty and our privilege to rejoice in God and to rejoice in Him at all times. This is the the phrase in Philippians, rejoice the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Think about your week this week. Were you serious about pursuing joy? And did you find that by ascribing worth Value, preciousness to God and what He was doing, or or did you have something else that you wanted? Some other thing? Maybe it was I want to hear my husband say I love you, or I want to hear I want to hear my children say thank you. All of those are good things, but they're self focused, right? They're about hey, I I I want what's good for me. Not I want to see God. I want to be in God. I want to be close to God. I want to do what it takes to be reminded of who he is and what he's done for me. And you make choices in your life pursuing value. You you worship all of the time. All of us do. It's not that we only worship on Sundays. We worship every day of the week. We say, this is what's valuable to me. This is what I want to focus on. This is what I want to find joy in, and we go after it. And there's nothing wrong with that pursuit. It's only wrong if you're focused on the wrong things, the things that have no value, the things that can destroy you rather than give you life. And here the wise men, by example, travel for weeks, (laughs) make themselves uncomfortable, so so to speak. Why? Because they have something that's worth pursuing, that's worth saying, this is valuable to me. And so they pursue, in a sense, true worship. They're like, I, I, I know what's valuable to me, and I'm going to go after it. In our world today, we think that thought, I should pursue what's truly valuable. And then we go on to the next thing. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to go from here, and you're going to go eat lunch. And you're, then you're going to go maybe watch the, the bears play the lions or whatever team you want to pursue and then you're, you're just going to go on and you're going to what, what's next what's next what's next what's next and you do, we never stop and evaluate sometimes what what's really worth my time what's really worth my energy what what am I really worshiping with my life is it is it myself is it God is it someone else maybe And it's not like we have to like, radically shift a lot of times. It's more about the difference between saying, okay, I'm going you know, I'm, I'm to celebrate Christmas for the gifts, and I'm going to celebrate Christmas for Jesus. You know? Just that shift. I'm going to spend time with my family. Why not? Not to hear them say, I love you, but to say to them, I love you. And that shift is about saying what's truly valuable to me inside, things that, that will give me life. You say, well, how does it, the shift give you life? Well, it's because we, we know God. <laughs> we know that he gives to us, and we therefore give to others. We know that he loves us, and that, that, therefore we can turn and love others as well. So we pursue joy by seeking true worship. We also pursue joy by paying attention to God's direction. Paying attention to God's direction. How, how, do we, how do we know where to find God in the midst of life? You ever thought about that? Like, how do you know that you're kind of with God in the midst of your life? And here, obviously, they, they receive a dream, right? So notice what it says. Matthew 2, verse 12 says, And so here, Joseph receives direction of something he wasn't even aware of, right? Herod and and everything with that, and and, and he needs to move fast to to leave Bethlehem to escape what is going to happen in the next few verses. And yet, we say, well, I I don't receive dreams, in a sense, I don't receive those dreams in such a way that that they allow me to, to know what God wants me to do and how God wants me to act, and... I would say that's okay. You know, I mean, God doesn't use dreams normally these days. Why? Is because we have the word of God. We know more about God through this than we do through a dream. But, uh, but paying attention to his word is important. Peter was also, Peter was a guy who was serious about joy as well, right? Peter was the guy who was impulsive. He was going after. He, he wanted joy, right? He was the guy who was like, Okay, I'm going to jump under the water, you know, to to follow Jesus and then oh uh, forget, you know, he's impulsive but he was after stuff, right? He was going after stuff. And, and frankly his two books that he's written that are in the New Testament in or two letters, right? First Peter and Second Peter are both about joy as well. They're about pursuing joy and the the second Second Peter is about about recognizing prophecy and and understanding that prophecy leads us to a place where we need to live by faith because we have to wait. And joy in the waiting. But in 1 Peter, he's talking about that exile aspect of life, the fact that we all are exiles, just as in Matthew chapter 2, there's exile going on for Jesus Christ. And he's like, how do you live In God's presence, knowing God's direction in the midst of feeling exiled, feeling alone, feeling different from everyone else under trials. And I just want to kind of walk through a few verses from 1 Peter to kind of give you a taste of how Peter navigated life in the midst of being exiled. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's saying, like, you're living in joy, and you should. And you just get that Peter's, Peter's interested in his, his readers and interested in himself being serious about joy, living joyfully, having something that's not based on circumstance, but it's based on reality. And he's, at the same time, he's saying, yes, he's acknowledging, which Christianity does, Even as it talks about God's grace, it also acknowledges the troubles and the trials that we received, and we have to live through. He goes on to say, "...so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." Obtaining the joy, outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He, he, he puts joy around the mention of trials. You notice that? He's like, hey, you're rejoicing even though you face trials and even though your, your faith is tested in the midst of that, you're, you've, you have joy. You're rejoicing because of the salvation of your souls. But how, do, how do you... How do you navigate this? He says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have been now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. He's saying, you've received this glory. You've received this, the the, the prophecies have been fulfilled. You know these truths now. How then do we live? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being so reminded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ." As obedient children, do not be conformed to the ignorance, the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you should be holy, for I am holy. So, one of the things he's saying here is, as we navigate life, as we go through life, we have to understand that we we will have griefs, we will have trials, we will have things that are trouble us. But in the midst of that, we have something that we can look forward to: the grace of God in our lives. And we can pursue holiness because of the grace that we have received. He goes on to say, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. He says, he's saying, you, you, you didn't receive financial redemption, you received redemption through the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Having purified your souls by your, by your obedience to the truth for sincere bloody love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So in a sense, he's saying as you navigate through this land of exile, there's just thing, some things to remember. And I've kind of summarized it this way. You ask yourself some questions. What am I grieving over? And how does that move me to rejoice in Christ? You have these two things that are always in juxtaposition in your life, things that you're grieving over, losses that you have. maybe it's in family or in friends or in situations. And yet at the same time, he's saying, "In the midst of those, you should be reminded of what you have in Christ." And how we navigate life is to, is to navigate this line where we, we see our griefs and cause it to remind us to remind us of the joys that we have in Christ. And that, that keeps us centered. It doesn't pull us away into despair. But nor does it just pull us away into, you know, la-la land, like everything's happy, there's no problems at all. But we, we look at life and we say, okay, I can, I can see the griefs, but they don't define me. They're just part of what God is using to point me to Jesus. And what Jesus has done for me, what Jesus has done for me defines me. Another question you can ask yourself is, how can I set my hope fully on grace? I'm I'm looking forward to the future, and maybe you're scared of the future, or you're excited about the future. How do you you set your mind on the grace that you're going to receive, that you know you're going to receive in the future? Why? Because Christ died for you and rose again. And in the midst of thinking about the future, he says, conduct yourself with fear. It's like, there's some things you're going to need to avoid in your steps moving forward in the future. And so it's, it's like he's saying, can you just take one step at a time? One step at a time, walking with God, navigating life. Why? Because it's about, you're going to find joy not by, you know, that rainbow over the, over the edge of the horizon, as much as it is by just being with your Savior and walking with him and talking with him and, and, and letting him guide you through life. And if you're serious about joy, you'll put yourself in that position. You'll think about hope, but you also think about what to avoid. The last question you you could ask yourself as you navigate through life is, who should I love earnestly right now? And how do I do that obediently? Who do I love earnestly right now? Just again, that next step. What's this week going to look like? Okay? Who can I love earnestly this week? You know, I think a lot of times when we start thinking about people to love, our list goes immediately like this, (laughs) and we're like, oh man, (laughs) how can I get all of those people loved? None of us can love all of the people in our lives adequately every day of every week. There's just no way. We're limited human beings. We don't have the energy and the time, but we can choose one or two. We can prioritize, obviously, our family and then the friends that we have and, and, and we can say, you know what, who can I love earnestly this week? Who, who needs my love? Again, to shift ourselves from saying, uh, I need to hear someone loves me to who can I say, I love you too? And that shift allows us to be in a place where we see God at work, we see God's action. And that's what he's going to say all the way through First Peter is, in the midst of the trials of life, in the difficulties of life, these three basic questions will help you navigate through that remind you that you're not, you're, you are in exile, but you're not going to fully and always be in exile. Because, yes, there is destruction. Herod is going to kill the babies around Bethlehem up to two years old. But then, Joseph and Mary are going to come back and they're going to end up in Bethlehem not they're going to want to go back to Bethlehem but they don't end up there why because they it says that he's to fulfill prophecy he's going to be called a Nazarene which again is the idea of again outside (laughs) outside of the blessing. Jesus starts his life not as fetid like the prince who was born you know not pampered he lives exiled in Egypt Then he lives in Nazareth, which is a poor community on the edge of Israel. He lives on the edge. He lives outside of of what's popular and what's powerful. But he does it because he's like us. He knows where we're really at. And even when we feel like, well, I've arrived, I'm, I'm somebody, somebody People know me (laughs) like I have I have position, I have power. There's this niggling voice in our head that's like, but you don't deserve it. If people knew the real you, then (laughs) we know that about ourselves. And Jesus knows that about us as well. And that's why He came. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us, taking us from our exile and redeeming us back to himself, to walk with God and enjoy God's presence forever. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, you don't know his goodness and his blessing in your life, you you can't celebrate the birth of Christ. You can celebrate Christmas maybe by getting presents and enjoying family and having fun that way, but you can't celebrate Christmas recognizing the Savior who was born to die for us to rec- reconcile us to God I would appeal to you I would urge you to place your faith and trust in the one who came as an exile to bring you back to God himself And as we just as we think about this season I just want you to be serious about joy why because if you're serious about joy, you'll be serious about life. And you'll be thinking about the one who provides both to you in the person of Jesus Christ. To do that well, to celebrate, you need to remind yourself what God has done. This is what we do at Christmas. We do it in a variety of ways, right? We do it through candles. We do it through singing. We do it through specials. We do it through the children's program. And those are all little ways that we do it. But the big picture behind all of those things is why Why we're, we're celebrating not okay, we're going to gather together and we're going to shower presents on each other. We're celebrating the one who came to make us one with God. Reminding ourselves of even though we don't have it yet, we're not fully one with God. We're not fully in his presence yet. Yet we have something that gives us joy. It gives us joy all the other days of the year because we have Emmanuel, God with us. And we can walk with him and talk with him, even though we cannot see him. And surprised by joy, C.S. Lewis writes, Joy is distinct from pleasure. It accepts the whole of life, even the bitter and hopeless parts, and is content with the mere fact of existence. But it's not just the mere fact of existence. It's the fact that we get to exist in God's presence. And so we remind ourselves of these things. To do that well, we need to realize that each step is under God's providential care. In the joys and in the sorrows, each step is under His care. We can remind ourselves that the journey is part of the destination. That we get to realize that this is is part of God teaching us about Himself and who we are so that we can know Him and know His love in mere Christianity C.S. Lewis put it this way Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred Sorry I'm going to I've got this one actually up here Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred loneliness despair rage ruin and decay But look for Christ and you will find him And with him everything else thrown in And that's the joy that we have in Christ That's why we celebrate Christmas not because everyone else does and so we gotta tack on a religious meaning to it. No, it's because this is what Christmas is. It's God with us in the midst of life coming to us and bringing everything else, everything that we thought we'd lost, everything that we thought we, we could not regain, everything that we thought was destructive and, and hopeless and futile about our lives. He comes and he redeems all of those things because He came. To be one of us. God in the flesh. God with us. Is he your savior? I pray that he is. Heavenly Father. I thank you for your goodness to us. In sending your son Jesus Christ. He was an exile in Egypt. And even in Nazareth. And yet he came to make us family with you, to have that joy of being together, and that joy of, obviously for you as our Father, you, you're, you're, one of your highest values is being together with your family, all in one place, rejoicing in what you have done. Lord, we aren't there yet. We have not arrived yet. But we do have the joy of knowing that that is your plan for us. That you have executed part of that plan by sending your son to be one of us and then dying on the cross and rising again for us. Lord, you are serious about joy. Help us to be serious as well. To think about what we're doing with our lives and doing what's truly valuable. Worshipping truly not just on Sunday, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and all the days as well. Why? Because you are a great and awesome God and you walk with us through life. We thank you that you do. In your son's name we pray, amen.